Amen. Good evening, church. Will you all bow with me for a word of prayer this evening? Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for another opportunity to be in your house. Thank you for a chance to gather as your church, to praise you, and to hear from you tonight, Lord. So I just praise your word is open, that that's indeed what would happen. Father, you would open our ears and our hearts to receive your word, Lord, to take joy in it and to, by the power of your spirit, apply it to our lives so that we might live in it. So we just thank you for this chance to be here. Thank you for each person, each family that's represented here this evening, that you would bless their homes as a result of being here tonight. So I just pray, Father, that you be honored and glorified as we seek to do your will and to hear from you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, as most of you saw on Sunday, my name is Pastor Ryan. Um, I am filling in for Pastor Mike. He's, um, he's still recovering from a small procedure. And um, so he uh, asked that we just continue to pray for him this evening. And so I'm filling in for him tonight. I hope you got a small sheet. There's um, uh, I always like to do fill in the blanks on these Wednesday nights because I'm just assuming y'all have had a long day and you need something to help you pay attention. So I give blanks. So if you don't fill in the blanks, um, you won't know half of what we covered tonight unless you got a really good memory. So um, there's a piece there and I hope to keep you on track with that this evening. Um, Somebody, I won't name names, but somebody informed me that I preached too long on Sunday that I should make it up to you all by preaching shorter this evening. That probably won't happen. It's possible, but it's not probable. So, but I can hopefully say that we'll get out on time. So, um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and I'm kind of piggybacking off of Sunday's sermon I preached from Psalm 80, and we talked a lot about... Um, in that sermon, Psalm 80 talks a lot about turning our eyes towards the Lord and having him turn our face towards his, which is a sign of, as you know, of, of repentance. That's what the word repent means, is that we, we stop gazing at what we are or were gazing at, and we turn to Christ and embrace him for who he is, and God's face shines on us. And uh, what it means to repent is to be made right with God. And so I wanted to speak on... Uh, it's kind of a doctrinal talk, I guess you could say tonight. I wanted to speak about a very central and core aspect of our faith, of the Christian faith, uh, namely the doctrine of, of justification by faith alone. And so that's where I want to go this evening. Still dealing a little bit with the throat stuff from Sunday, but I'm much better. Um, so back a few years ago, October 31st, 2017, was a day that marked um, a, really a special time in the life of Baptists and most all Protestant churches all over the globe. It was the, that day, October 31st, 2017, was 500 years to the day that um, a little known at the time, much well-known, much more well-known person now, German monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and sparked what, what became known as and what we study in school today as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, it's known as an event that sparked the beginning of the spread of Reformation, which had, had already been happening in many places throughout Europe at the time. Uh, but it spread um, through other parts of Europe and the world, and the Reformation brought us a lot of things in the church today that we take for granted, a lot of things that we don't even know um, are traced back to this, this movement that began over 500 years ago, uh, such as hymns for the common people. Um, the fact that we gather together and we sing praise songs to the Lord and we sing hymns 
to God is, um, was, was not a common thing in Catholic churches um, in Europe and other parts of the globe at that time. The authority of Scripture, uh, the central authority, the holding up the Bible as something that is the primary and only authority, the only word of God as it relates to Christian doctrine and Christian faith is something that came out of the Reformation. The church had lost that and had held up traditions of man and the words of popes as also having authority often equal to that of Scripture. So maintaining, maintaining that Scripture alone is our primary authority for the Christian faith is something that also came out of that. Um, scripture in the common language. There was Latin translations of Scripture that was common <clears throat> during that time, but there was no language in, in the common language of the people that the Bible was written in. And guys like Martin Luther and William Tyndall um, took up that mantle. And so we are able to read the Bible today in the English language that we all understand because of men who were willing to lay their lives down to make that happen. Uh, the, the fact that preaching um, and listening to preaching is a central act of corporate worship is um, something that came out of the Reformation. So all that to say is that something pretty big happened over 500 years ago and that we still sit in the shadow of that and we practice things today that we, we benefit from a lot of work and a lot of blood that was shed by men and women across the globe at that time to help us cling to the truth of Bible. Mainly what came out of that was this doctrine of justification by faith, by faith alone in Christ alone. Um, Martin Luther was a man who loved the Word of God and he often wrestled with guilt over his own sin and he would be known, there's a book um, called Here I Stand, it's his biography written by a guy by the last name of Bainton, I forget his first name. But in, in that biography of Martin Luther, it talks about how he would sit for hours in prayer trying to recall every sin that he had committed that day in thought or in deed um, so that he could confess it to make sure that he was all good with the Lord, make sure he confessed everything. He actually wore some priest out. He just kept going to confession over and over again. And the priest would finally be like, Martin, just go. You're, you're good. Just go home. And he lived in fear that some unintentional sin that he had not asked forgiveness for was left. He was left unpardoned for that. So he was so fearful of, of also of misrepresenting God's word that when he spoke at one of the first sermons that he ever gave, he just froze speechless and he couldn't continue. He got up to preach and he couldn't preach. It had took him... Uh, that much. So there was a question at the center of the heart of Martin Luther and the Reformation movement, though, as a whole, that they all wrestled with. And it was the answer to this question that many split from the Catholic Church during the day, and many would eventually lose their life over this very question <clears throat> about how is a person justified before a holy God? And by what means is a person made right with God? See, the answer seems simple to us today, but back then the answer was, was much more complicated. When you ask the question, how is a person made right with God? The Catholic Church had some answers, but they didn't have very good answers. Um, the common everyday person um, couldn't read Scripture for themselves, uh, mainly because they couldn't read, and those who did couldn't read Latin. And so they had to depend upon the church to tell them what they ought to do and what they ought to believe and how to, to be right with God. And they saw the church as their means of salvation and means of grace. And a lot of Martin Luther and many reformers like him recaptured this, this scriptural, and we'll cover a little bit more of this later, this scriptural doctrine of justification. It's a biblical word. We may not use that word a lot, but it's a very biblical word. Uh, and given that this doctrine was central to the Reformation movement, 
which we have all benefited from. I just found it proper just to, to kind of expound upon it tonight, reemphasize it. And we're basically going to focus around three questions. We're going to ask three questions, and we're going to answer those three questions throughout the evening. And so, but first, I want to read from Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 21 to 26. That's where we're going to be tonight. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. This is probably the most gospel-dense section of Scripture, particularly in Romans, maybe in the New Testament. It's just uh, pretty much lays out the gospel for us here. So, 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, there's that word, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the reading of God's word tonight. So the first question that we're going to ask in your first blank on your paper, what is justification? So you're going to hear that word a lot tonight. What is that? What is justification? Justification. It's really a, it's, it's a core, if not the core, doctrine of our faith today as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus. What is justification? In its most basic sense, justification is a legal, it's a legal term. It's a legal declaration. The Greek term for justify is the Greek word dikaio, and it has a lot of meanings, but basically it means to render or to declare righteous. It's a legally binding pronouncement. The word dikaio is used in this passage here, um, particularly in verse uh, 24. 24. So, <clears throat> just being justified, justification, is the op- its opposite is condemnation, which is a legal declaration of guilt. To condemn is to declare guilty. To justify is to declare innocent. So it's important for us to understand this basic definition of justification of being declared righteous in God's sight as we look at this passage because it'll help us expound upon this and understand it. Romans 23:23, which is a popular verse a lot of us have memorized, says that all have sinned. All have sinned. And he makes this clear in this passage. No matter if you're Jew, no matter if you're Gentile, we're all level when it comes to sin. We've all sinned. So the gist of this passage is that guilty sinners have somehow been declared righteous before a holy God. And this was the question that we wrestle with. If you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus, it's a question you've asked yourself. How can I be made right with God? How can I enter into his kingdom? It's the same question Nicodemus asked in John 3. So this gist of this passage, how is it that guilty sinners have somehow been declared righteous before a holy God? How is this possible? Well, the Catholic Church at the time of Martin Luther and the other reformers over 500 years ago would say it's possible because the church grants grace. They, they viewed the church as kind of this repository or bank of grace, that if you wanted to receive grace, which is what you needed, by the way, to get into heaven, that if you wanted to receive grace, you had to partake of the sacraments of the church. So you had to go to confession. You had to go to penance. You had to receive the Lord's Supper. 
You had to be baptized by the church, confirmed by the church. There's many works that they would do. And every time you did one of these sacraments, you would get a deposit of grace into your bank account. And the goal was, is that at the end of your life, hopefully, you can't know for sure, but at the end of your life, hopefully there was enough deposits of grace made into your account through the church that when you stood before the Lord in judgment, there would be enough to clear your account of sin, uh, clear you of your debt of sin, and you would get to enter in. Most people did not get that privilege according to Catholic doctrine, so there was a place called purgatory in their doctrine to where you would go and you would work off whatever you didn't have paid off. So whatever grace you lacked, you would go to purgatory and you would work it off, and however long you spent there, you would eventually work it off to where you would then finally get into heaven. So you would go through life doing these things, hopefully that you built up enough of an account through your penance and through buying indulgences and through all these things going through the church that you'd be cleansed of sins, but nobody could be cleansed of all their sin, therefore purgatory, through doctrine of purgatory. And we see that as unbiblical. It was a works-based justification. It was dependent all on you and how much you did or how little you did. But if you read verse 28 here in chapter 3, which is not part of our reading, but it says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from, apart from the works of the law. So a man is not justified by works of the law, but he's rather justified apart from the law. So again, how is justification before a holy, righteous God possible? How are we guilty sinners, the condemned, suddenly declared free and righteous? And how can God be just while pardoning the guilty? And it's clear from Scripture all are guilty. There are no innocent people. It says that in several places, not just Romans 3.23. Although if God just said it once in Romans 3.23, that's enough for us to understand. We all stand guilty before God. God doesn't need to say things multiple times for it to be true. So this passage answers that question. How does God declare sinners righteous while still maintaining his own holiness? So that's the first question. What is justification? It's a legal declaration of innocence. God legally declaring sinners innocent before him. So the question has to be, then, number two, how are we justified before God? How are we justified before God? So there's three parts of this answer on your sheet there. Three parts of this answer. But the short answer is, it's by grace through faith in the completed work of Christ. So we're going to break down verses 21 through 26 to answer this. This is where we're going to spend most of our time here on point two. So justification is a, it's a major theme of Paul's writing. The reason it was a big deal during the Reformation period is because it was a big deal in the Bible. Paul expounded upon it. Uh, think about it. In the first century church, you have Jews, you have Gentiles, Greeks, all now belonging to the body of Christ. All now congregate in the same place, worshiping God together. And what became, what, is, what was known as the church. And people who were once outside the people of God, the Gentiles, have now been brought in because of Jesus. The problem was is that you still had a group of Jews called Judaizers who were teaching that Gentiles, in order to be truly part of God's kingdom and truly part of God's people, had to submit themselves not only to Christ, but to the law. If you were, for instance, an uncircumcised Greek man, you must become circumcised. If you ate pork, you've got to stop doing, you got to stop doing that. In essence, they were falsely teaching that in order to be a Christian, you must functionally also become a Jew, and that 
was something that Paul combated, particularly in the book of Galatians. That false teaching with his teaching on justification. This is a theme you see all throughout Paul's writings. So there's four important things that this passage particularly teaches us on justification. So point one on uh, point A on under two, it is based on Christ's merits. It's based on Christ's merits. So if you look at verses 21 and 22, Paul's main point in chapter 3 is having proved the universal sinfulness of man. Verse 20 sums up, for no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law, meaning God's. Nobody is justified in the sight of God by works of the law. We can't earn a righteous standing before God. So by what means are people declared righteous? According to this passage, God provided the means. God provided the means. We can't earn it. We can't do it on our own. So God provides the means. He says in verses 21 and 22 that God has revealed his righteousness to all who have faith in Jesus. No matter if you're Jew or Gentile. So we are declared righteous by means of faith in Christ who completely fulfilled the law. Didn't leave any part of it unfulfilled. He fulfilled every part of the law and offered himself as a willing sacrifice for our sins. So this righteousness is better than what one can achieve by following the law. Remember, even Jesus says that if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, how in the world does that happen? Whose righteousness would exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, Paul's answer is only Jesus. Only Jesus' righteousness would exceed that. So we're all declared righteous by means of faith in Christ who fulfilled the law and offered himself up. And that righteousness is better than one that we can achieve on our own because it's God's source of righteousness, right? God is the source of this righteousness. Jesus' perfection is the basis of it, and eternity is the scope. So this righteousness is completely apart from the law because it is based off of placing our trust in the Lord Jesus, who perfectly kept the law for us. So that's, that's the one big part. What's one big component? How are we justified before God? Well, it's because Christ did something. And because he did that, if his work, we can be declared justified before God. The second part of that question, how are we justified before God? A, something we need to know about justification is this, we can't earn it, so it must be freely given. It's freely given. Verses 23 and 24 expound upon this. Verse 23 is just Paul restating his case that we're all sinners. As if Romans chapter 1 didn't expound enough on the fact that we're all pretty rotten to the core. Romans, he just says it plainly in Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. For his original audience of Jews and Gentiles, um, this was an especially strong statement. Um, God, again, makes no distinction. If you see what, what's leading up to this declaration in Romans 3.23 that we're all sinful and guilty before God is that there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews don't have a leg up on the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't have a leg up on the Jews. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you've got Jews and Gentiles all worshiping together in the same church, Paul's declaring to both of them, neither one of you have done enough. Nobody's done enough. No matter where you're from, no matter what your background, no matter what you did according to the law, none of you have done enough. So, God makes no distinction. 
All, Jew and Gentile, have sinned and fall short. Fall short of what? Well, God's glory, God's righteous requirements to be justified. Even even law-keeping Jews. This is what makes verse 24 so beautiful. We often quote Romans 3.23, but Romans 3.24 follows it and gives us our hope. And we and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification is free. All of sin, all fall short of the righteous requirements of God. So in grace, God gifts justifications for free to those who place their trust in Jesus. It's, it's very strong language if you could read it. In the Greek, God has freely pardoned those who are guilty. He has freed sinners, not only from the penalty of their sin, but from the guilt of their sin. We can stand before God not only having our sin debt wiped free, but God says that he removes our guilty conscience, the shame that comes because of our sin. In Christ, there's no debt owed, there's no shame to bear. He did it all. The word redemption in this passage, you've heard this several times, I'm sure. It comes from a Greek term that means to be released by a payment or a ransom, a payment of a ransom. And so the imagery is of the ancient slave market where someone pays what is necessary to see a prisoner or a slave set free. They're ransom. They're free. So Paul anticipated the next couple of questions that his hearers might have had when they read that. So if God is just, God is holy, right? God is, has a standard that we can't meet. And yet he looks at us who are sinners who obviously can't meet the standard and says, you're, you're pardoned. How can God justly pardon those and remain just himself? What payment could affect the release of sinners from the just wage of sin, which is death? And so Paul's going to answer that question in verse 25, which is the third part C on this one. It's made, po- it, it's made because of Christ's death as our substitute. It's, uh, there's, I left out a word there. It's made possible because of Christ's death as our substitute. So how are we justified? Well, justification is possible because of Christ's death as our substitute. God can justify sinners because Christ was offered as a substitute. And this might be the most striking verse in all of Romans. The word used here in most of your translations should be propitiation. Again, I like the word justification. It's not a word we use a lot. Some of your translations may say atonement. Um, but the word is, is propitiation, the idea of propitiating something. The Greek word alludes to, and what propitiation means, is a, it, it's talking about appeasement or satisfaction. Something that appeases or satisfies the wrath of God. <clears throat> so the death of Christ satisfied or appeased the wrath of God for sin. He accepted it as payment for sin. So it alludes to uh, the Old Testament Day of Atonement. You know how the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and offer sacrifices for the people. And for, specifically to the mercy seat of the ark in the Holy of Holies in the temple, um, which is, was often called the propitiation. Um, and the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle blood of a sacrificed animal on the mercy seat and he would make propitiation or atonement. That animal was a substitute for the sins of people. That animal died instead of the people. There was even a a part of the process where a person would lay their hands 
on the animal being sacrificed, conveying the transference of guilt from them to the animal. So when the high priest sacrificed this animal, it was offered in their stead as a substitute. And the book of Hebrews describes Christ as having entered the Holy of Holies on our behalf, not by sprinkling the blood of an animal. Christ didn't go in as a high priest and offer an animal to cleanse for our sins because the blood of bulls and goats can't do that, but by offering his own life as atonement, as propitiation for us. So the idea that Paul's getting at here is that when we look to the cross and we see what Jesus did on the cross, we recognize that a very real, in real time, transaction took place on the cross. My sin was laid on Christ. Another word that we don't use a lot is, is, is the word impute. It means giving, this, giving something to somebody else, to impute something. So our sin was imputed to Christ. He bore it, and he died in our place. He was punished in our place. <clears throat> and that's why it is only through faith in Christ that man can be made right, because his sacrifice of himself is the only sacrifice by which we can be forgiven. So God is just, right? His justice demands that sin be punished. He, it demands it. God cannot be just and just let sinners off the hook, right? He's just, so his justice demands that sin be punished. But God's plan from all of eternity was that his son be sacrificed and offered up in our place. Christ said many times throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. This was out of obedience to his father. So God is not indifferent to sin, and he doesn't overlook sin as if it's not that bad, not that heinous. Our sin was so serious. If, if we have to ask the question, how serious is sin? How serious was my sin? How serious was your sin? Well, one glimpse at the cross should tell us it's a, it's a very, very big deal. It's bad. He was offered in our place because sin is so serious that Christ had to be offered in our place. So for those who have trusted Christ, he overlooks your sin because of what Martin Luther and several of the reformers called the great exchange. My sin was imputed to Christ to be punished, and his righteousness was given or imputed to me when I have faith in him so that I might live with him forever. That is what it means to be justified by faith in Christ alone. Uh, Jerry Bridges, who wrote, wrote the book Pursuit of Holiness, <clears throat> and several other books that go along with it. Uh, he says this, To be justified means more than to be declared not guilty. It actually means to be declared righteous before God. It means God has imputed or charged the guilt of our sin to His Son, Jesus Christ, and has imputed or credited Christ's righteousness to us. Church, only He can save because only Christ is righteous. Only his sacrifice is good enough to take away the sins of the world. So how is God just in forgiving our sins? Well, because he did punish our sin. He did not overlook our sin. He punished Christ for it. So the fourth part of this, how are we justified before God? So it's based on Christ's merits. It's freely given. It's made possible because Christ's death as our substitute and then fourthly, it glorifies the righteousness of God. It glorifies the righteousness of God. 
So the justifying of sinners proves that God is both righteous and he declares righteous those who trust in his son. Because of the work of Christ on our behalf, God is he's just in declaring us innocent and justifying us. So without Christ, there's no means or basis <coughs> which God could remain just and overlook sin. But he didn't. He maintained his justice by Christ offering himself in our place. He is just and justified. That's what Paul means in verse 26. When he said that so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. One commentary calls this a supreme paradox of the gospel. He, uh, the author of this particular commentary goes on to say, Paul never said a more startling thing than this. <clears throat> it means that God is just and accepts the sinner as a just man, as a righteous man. The natural thing to say would be God is just and therefore condemns the sinner as a criminal. But here we have the great paradox. God is just and somehow in that incredible miraculous grace that Jesus came to bring to men, he accepts sinners not as criminals but as sons and daughters whom he still loves. So in other words, to put it simply, God gets all the glory. If you'll remember when Jesus was done explaining to Nicodemus what it meant to be born again in John chapter 3. And I'm going to turn there so I do not get these words wrong. So that when he was done explaining what it means to be born again to Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3. Christ says in verse 20, John 3 verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So God gets all the glory. It was God who in eternity past planned redemption through his son. The cross was not an accident. It wasn't a, an afterthought of God. It wasn't plan B. It was plan A. The cross was plan A from the beginning. How was God going to save his people his son was going to be come incarnate, become flesh and blood, dwell among us, live a perfect life, die on the cross as a substitute, and raise again three days later. That was God's plan A. God doesn't need plan B. It was God who in mercy willingly looked over past sins until they could be atoned for. It was God who offered up his son at the right time to pay for my sin, to pay for your sin. And it is God who declares righteous those who trust in Jesus. God planned it, he put it into action, he fulfills it. God is both just and righteous, he gets all the glory. And Paul was stunned by this. Um, Paul was utterly stunned. If you keep going here in Romans chapter 3, in verse 27, he says, what becomes of our boasting? How, when you, when you come to understand this, this is where it gets applicable to us as Christians. You're like, well, most people in here, I'm assuming... <clears throat> have understood that it's only the work of Christ that can save us and that we've trusted Christ, many of us a long time ago. So what's in this, this message for us tonight? Well, A, we ought not ever forget it, that we were made right by God's work, not our own, that in order for our sin to be paid for, Christ had to die a very heinous and horrible death on the cross, and that because of that we are made right with God and God is just in justifying us because of the work of Jesus, then what becomes of our boasting? That's Paul's question. In other words, once you understand what God did, the links that he went through 
to justify those of us who do not deserve to be justified, to be declared righteous. But yet he has. But once you understand what God has done, well, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. In other words, Paul's saying we don't, we don't have a boast before the cross. We don't have uh, a means of patting ourselves on the back for how good we've done or look at all the things that we did to obtain this. Boasting is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Apart from works of the law. And if you again, if you, Paul continues to expound, if you flip over to Romans 8, I'm going to read a rather lengthy passage here, but I just kind of want you to see how Paul is a man who by this time had been a Christian for a while. And when he thought about these things, when he thought about what it means to be made right with God and what God had to go through um, in order to justify us and what Christ had to endure in order to be our substitute, he became overwhelmed by it. In Romans eight twenty-eight through 39, Paul says, And we know that those who love God For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, what does God do with those who come to Christ? He justifies. And those whom he justifies, whom he declares righteous, he also glorifies. So the end game is that we would become like Jesus. God justifies us so that he might, later on down the road, glorify us. We're not in our glorified state yet. Um, We still have bodies that don't work like they're supposed to. We get sick. um, We get hurt. So we're legally declared right before God, but we still live in this body of flesh, this body of sin. But God is working in us this what he calls being conformed to the image of his son, being conformed to the image of Jesus. So those whom he calls, he justifies, and those who he justifies, he's going to take us all the way through and glorify us. So what then shall we say to these things? What we say about this? God has justified us. God has made us right. God is conforming us to the image of his son. What are we supposed to say about these things? If God is for us, well, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Does God leave anything out that we, that we need for salvation? Is there anything he forgot? We're going to find out later on down the road that God forgot something, and that because of that something we're not saved. Paul says no. If God doesn't withhold anything from us, everything that we need in order to live rightly and to be declared righteous before him has been done. And everything we'll ever need, God will do for us. 33, who then shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here's what Paul's convinced of. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So once God has justified his people, you go back to the question, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Who can lay a charge against God's elect? In other words, what charge could possibly be brought against people who have been justified and been declared right because of the work of Christ? There's nothing Satan can lay at the feet of God that would have him condemn us again because we've been made righteous, not by our own merit, but because of the work of Christ. So what does this mean for me? That's the third question. What does this mean for me? <clears throat> well, it means a few things, three things specifically. One, it means your debt of sin has been canceled. Your debt of sin has been canceled. Colossians 2.14 puts it this way. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to a cross. So that's one aspect of this. What does it mean for you? There's no sin left to be paid for. Christ paid it all. Second thing, the wrath of God has been removed. You're at peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God, there's no more wrath. You're not going to die and stand before the Lord one day and, he's, and him have one small ounce of his wrath to pour out because it wasn't completed at the cross. No, he did everything at the cross. Everything is done. No wrath is left for your sin or mine if we've been declared righteous by faith through the works of the Lord Jesus. And then the third thing, you are now and forever declared righteous in God's sight. And I'm going to flip over here to Ephesians chapter 2, and you can follow me if you like. So one of the implications of being justified is that God will never unjustify you. In order for that to happen, he would have to look at the work of his son and say that wasn't good enough, and God will never do that. You are now and forever declared righteous in God's sake. Ephesians 2 4 through 7 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, why does he do that? <clears throat> why does he declare all these sinners righteous through the blood of Jesus? What's the end game? So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So according to this passage, we're the display of God's kindness and grace to all of creation. All of creation looks at the church, these misfits that God has redeemed, he's ransomed, he's paid for by the blood of Jesus, and he's justified us because of Christ's work. And forever we are his, and forever all of heaven is going to marvel at the riches of grace shown to us in Christ Jesus and forever we will praise him for his grace and his mercy. We are a display to all of creation of the grace and the kindness of God being poured out on us because of the work of Jesus. So that's what it means for us. There's more, but those three things are certainly true. So the final thought here. So we're gathering today in a Baptist church, a Protestant church. We sing songs of praise in a common language. We read from our English translations of the Bible, and we hear teaching of God's Word, 
And we hopefully remember all those who came before us who, you know, many who of which shed their blood, died horrible deaths, burned at the stake, uh, among many other things, and became martyrs so that we might have these, these things that we're able, like an English Bible and a hymn book that we sing together, and uh, these wonderful truths that we cling to, that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And we cling to this truth that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And we're grateful that 500 years ago, God's Spirit began stirring in the hearts of men and women all over the world this message that man is not justified by any work of the law, by the Roman Catholic Church, by any priest or pope or any other thing that we could do. We're not justified by works or any other payment that we can make. But we're justified through the work of Jesus alone, by faith in him alone. And I I hope you are, but I'm glad that men and women were willing to suffer and to die to proclaim the message that being made right with God comes only through faith in Christ. We're all products of that today. Somebody told you that, and you accepted the Lord. And hopefully you've shared that with others. That Christ Jesus was willing to embrace a bloody cross in order to pay a ransom for our sins. So my simple question uh, is this. Maybe somebody's here, maybe listening online who is not right with God. You've not been made right with God. And I hope it's been made clear here today how that can happen. That only happens one way by trusting in Jesus, repenting of your sin, and confessing him as Lord. Um, And this definitely isn't just a message for the lost, for those who don't know the Lord. It's for us as saints also, as believers in the Lord Jesus. Many of you have trusted Christ and are, you know, living that out now. But we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with the fact that maybe we're not good enough. Maybe you have guilt over things you've done in the past. Maybe you're working hard to earn what God has already freely given you in the Lord Jesus. And so some of us need to recommit ourselves to the Lord and embrace the peace that comes in knowing, that only comes in knowing that you've been made right with God, not because of anything you did or will do or any good deeds, but in Christ alone. So let his word speak to us tonight and guide us in that uh, discussion. Embrace this wonderful doctrine of the church um, and embrace... And be thankful for the work of Jesus on the cross. Will you pray with me tonight? Lord, I thank you for the free gift of grace that's offered us in Lord Jesus. I thank you that you are both the just and justifier of sinners. I thank you that the ransom was paid on the cross, that Jesus died in our place. And through that, we as guilty sinners can be declared now and forever righteous. Not because of anything we have done or ever will do, but because of the riches of your mercy poured out on us. In Christ Jesus, Lord, I help you help this truth to sink deep into our hearts that we may daily thank you and glorify you in all that we do. Give us strength to live in a way that magnifies your glory. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all for being here tonight. And uh, three minutes early. So I didn't quite make up for Sunday, but three, three minutes you got. Thank you all. Be blessed. Have a good night.